Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 225th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Matt Golbranson. Matt is the president of Pine Grove Financial Group, an RA in Minnesota that manages over $550 million for about 325 families. What's unique about Matt, though, is that despite the widely held belief that direct mail and educational seminars have gone the way of the dinosaur, he has continued over the past decade to see positive marketing results from using direct mail to fill seats at in-person seminar events geared towards educating people about planning for the plethora of life transitions they face as they approach retirement, and then convincing them to work with him to navigate those retirement transitions. In this episode, we talk in depth about the ROI that can still be generated from a marketing funnel built around direct mail seminars. Matt's key realization around why fear-based marketing will only get you so far and doesn't necessarily help clients move forward to do business. The reason Matt started to charge an upfront planning fee for new clients as he gained traction with his seminars is a means of demonstrating that the work he and his team do add real value. How Matt has adapted his process in a world where in-person events haven't happened for a year and why Matt feels that pre-retirees and retirees are still an attractive target market despite the level of competition in the niche. We also talk about the way that Matt has been able to leverage a relatively lean, at least by industry standards, team of nine people to service $550 million of AUM by building out workflows and integrations within their tech stack in order to become ultra-efficient at the common tasks. Why the firm's desire to focus on tax-savvy household-level allocations let Matt choose 55IP as their core portfolio management software instead of some of the more popular and common alternatives, and the various other technology tools that Matt's firm has implemented to support tax alpha as a key value add they bring to their clients, especially given that Matt and most of his clients live in a high-tax state. And be certain to listen to the end, where Matt shares the challenges of starting his career as a young advisor at a wirehouse. How the challenges of prospecting led Matt to shift to the bank channel that had a more captive audience of prospects that could be referred to him. How was Matt's initial success with seminar marketing and the realization that he could grow an advisory firm without having a big name brand behind him that led him to eventually launch his own RIA. And how Matt has started to further scale the efficiencies he's already built in his practice by bringing on outside advisor teams who are able to bolt on seamlessly to his system. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Matt Goldbranson. Welcome, Matt Goldbranson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm excited to have you joining us on the, on the podcast today to, to talk a little bit about, I guess it's kind of become one of my favorite subjects these days, because it's it's bouncing around a lot in our advisor world, which is marketing and like how to build your marketing, how to how to scale your marketing, how to systematize your marketing, how to like actually spend some money on marketing and get some reasonable results. Cause I think a lot of advisors out there have kind of struggled with spent some money, didn't do anything for me. And I, I know you've really spent the past nearly 10 years now kind of building and systematizing a a, a marketing process. And so I'm just Excited to talk about like what that what that looks like and and how that's worked for you and and what you found works when you want to put a little dollars towards marketing to get something going. Awesome. Well, I hope I can 
add some value to everybody uh, out there and listening. Uh, marketing is not easy. It comes with a lot of trial and error, a lot of failure, a lot of frustration, but also some some successes too. As we get started, I, I think I'd love to begin by just understanding the advisory firm itself as it exists today. So can you just tell us a little bit about the advisory firm? Just like, what's the size of the firm? What do you do? Who do you do it for? Just help us understand the context of, of today. And then we'll talk a little more about like, where did all these clients come from to, to get it to that point? Awesome. Sure. So we are an SEC registered advisory, just as many of the listeners out there are. AUM wise, I would guess somewhere in the 550 to $600 million range, depending on where the market is at uh, at any, any given day. And I'll, I'll talk about how that's broken down here in a second. But staff wise, I have a team of nine that office out of my primary office here in Woodbury, Minnesota, which is in the, the East Metro for those people that wanted to look at that a little bit closer to be more specific. We're about two miles from the uh, world headquarters of 3M, which is uh, obviously a, uh, a Dow company. Within our team, I have essentially two, what I would call lead advisors. Um, so they're client facing, they're meeting with clients, they're doing reviews, they're leading the process, all that type of stuff. That does not include myself. So including myself, that would be three. And then around that has really built a specific team of, of people doing different things. I have another CFP, Michelle, who really is an advisor, but she handles all of our portfolio management, a lot of the technology that goes behind how we run our portfolios. And then I have a couple of just client service people who are who are on call to deal with whatever comes up that day with whether it's opening new accounts, doing transfers, dealing with client needs, sort of being the front line people. And then to round out the team, I have sort of what I would just call a, an office manager. What she does is is all the many things I don't even realize that she does for number one, but just kind of keeps everything going, deals with all of our vendors, deals with HR, that type of stuff. And then lastly, I have a paraplanner in there who prepares all of our financial plans. And she also happens to be the person who is sort of like the point of contact on our, our Salesforce CRM. So that's the that's the staff. You want me to just keep going? Well, the only other, uh, yeah. But the one the one question I had tied to this, you had said kind of AUM of well, five fifty to six hundred, depending on what the markets are 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 doing for us this week. How many clients is that, or, or households? Like how many people are getting served? Yeah. So let me break that down for you. So last year I was approached by two advisor teams who I guess just weren't really happy with where they're the current RA that they were operating under and were interested in joining my practice for the exact reasons that we're going to talk about today is just marketing and ability to have systems and grow. And so we added them to our our platform last fall, like September-ish, October-ish. And that makes up about a hundred and seventy-five million of the the total M AUM is within that team. And so I honestly don't know the exact number of clients that they have on their end. But if you would look at on my side of it, it's probably in the 300-ish range. And it's tough to give you a hard number because we've got a lot of kids of clients or, you know, estates broken up and we've got four beneficiaries. And, you know, that seems to make up probably 50 to 75 households right there. But the reality is they're kind of tied to one family. So I'll give you an answer of, of probably somewhere in that like 300 to 325-ish range. Okay. So like kind of the, the original core portion of your business was called like 375 to 400 million, depending on what the markets do for us this week. And that's a base of about 300 clients. So just, you know, doing my, doing my napkin math, like average client household is 1.2, $1.3 million. Yeah. Probably somewhere right in that range. Okay. And I'm sure we'll come back to it a little bit later. And then, you know, another 175 million from some advisors who are 
sharing some of your systems and back office that comprises the other 175 million. Correct. You got it. Spot okay. on. Okay. Okay. So, so tell us more about over, just overall then structuring of the firm. Yep. So we have one primary office that I'm in that I'm in right now, and that's where all of my team is is housed. Obviously, we're spread out because of COVID, and people are working at home. But this is really home base. We do have a a second office in the South Metro here of the Twin Cities, and the reason we have that is uh, for marketing purposes. It allows us to cover more geographic territory when we're marketing, and it makes it easier for uh, prospective clients or people that want to meet with us to have like a, a convenient location to do that. Because just Minneapolis is large enough and there's enough traffic that saying like, hey, you're on the south side of the city, come on over to the east side of the city. People are like, oh, that's yeah. this is kind of Correct. far. Yeah, it's 25 minutes. Uh, the, the offices are 25 minutes apart, but they're, you know, they're basically like three or four cities kind of you know, south, southwest to get down there. So it allows, us, it allows us to do more frequent marketing because we're not hitting the same people all the time. And I can chat more about that. And where, where this other office, these other advisors really fit in is they're on the West Metro. So they're on the complete opposite side of town. So from a marketing perspective, they're not, you know, we're not hitting in the same territories. We're not really competing for any of the same clients. It, it, it should work out pretty well in that regard. Makes sense to me. So, so now talk to us a little bit about, well, so I, I guess the first question, Martin, just, just listening to what you're describing, like the, if, if I even just boil this down to the core portion of your business, 375 million of, of assets, 300 clients with sort of th- three advisors, including yourself and a total team of nine, that is by most industry standards, like a pretty lean team in just in total. I, you know, 300 clients across three advisors is not unusual. That ends out about 100 clients per advisor. If I include the para planner supporting that as well, it's sort of 300 clients across four, prof- four advice giving professionals, which is an average of 75, which is pretty close to the, the industry benchmarking studies that are out there. But only, I'm putting that in air quotes for you know, audio listeners, like o- only five other people in total supporting everything else that goes behind the scenes, though, is is a really lean office. I mean, I, I know firms that are 150 or 200 million under management who've got five or six support staff for for three or four advisor team members. And that's before you bolt on, you're presumably providing some crossover services and support for the other two advisors that bolted on their 175 million as well, which makes your, your staffing really just lean and efficient compared to typical advisory firms. So I'm, I, I guess I'm just curious from your end, like, does it, does it feel that way to, to you? Is there something about what you're doing that 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 supports that? Well, I probably am not the person to ask if it if it feels feels too lean. You should probably ask the support team. But you know, honestly, I I I know I know that because I've I read the you know we custody with Schwab, so I read the benchmark studies and I talk to other advisory firms and you know I try to be a good observer of our our profession and industry. And the first thing I'll say, Michael, to just be super candid is I'm incredibly lucky that I have an amazing team of achievers who come to work, they work hard, they are dedicated. We work really well together. I don't have any drama in the office. Things work really smooth. Uh, my core team has been with me since 2013. We've really had very little turnover in that you know, really in the last decade, obviously we've added people. So if, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, you know, talk about the things I've done 
done really well. It just it feels feels weird bragging or boasting, but I, I get what you're saying. He's like, I, I try to create a really good environment where, you know, I, I expect people to work hard and I give them a lot of responsibility, but and I and I expect a lot out of them, but I give them a lot of flexibility to do it on their terms. So, you know, I tell my staff, like if you need to run out and take care of something one day, like just go do it. You don't need to take official time off or, you know, if our some of our staff have things to deal with with their kids or grandkids, I just I try to be very flexible with them and I allow them to own their job, obviously give them the tools and resources to be flexible. But otherwise I just I try to stay out of the way. Okay. I like I hear you, but you're getting a lot of stuff done across a lot of clients. How does it not get drowning? Just I I mean I'm just just sheerly like one person handling portfolio management across 300 clients, two or three people doing client service across 300 plus clients plus the other two advisors that are that are bolted on like what's the what's the systems that you're using to run the the practice just to be able to get all the stuff done yeah so that's that's the other part here and and honestly the team gets a lot of credit for that and i built some of that early so i'll to take to maybe go back a little bit prior to you know prior to me having kids and really kind of just really building the firm so let's call that like 2013 to 2015 i worked a lot like i was incredibly dedicated to building what we have today. You know, if it meant someone doing financial plans on the weekend or or getting review notes done or whatever, like I I carried a lot of the weight in those those early years because I was just so I was so motivated at that time. And then obviously as you as you grow and your life priorities shift a little bit, I, I slowly started to add teams along the way. But I think one of the one of the benefits is we've had consistent growth. Like I didn't all of a sudden just go from hundred million to 300 million or, you know, whatever is like, it's kind of just was like the slow pace of, you know, 20 to $30 million a year for quite a few of those years or call it, you know, 30 to 40 clients a year. And we, we really were able to make adjustments in real time, but it wasn't a huge undertaking to make a change. And I think I was very mindful of growing strategically versus trying to grow as fast as possible. And I think that's, that's probably one benefit that we've, we've had. So to now fast forward, we've made some big changes. So one of, you know, we were prior to uh, probably two years ago, we were on the, the juncture desktop for our CRM, which is obviously like, you know, the central nervous system of every financial planning practice. And we used it heavily and we were of the you know, mindset, if it's not in juncture, it, it didn't happen. And, and everyone was really good about taking notes and reminding someone if they didn't put their notes in. And so then I realized it was probably time to get off a, a desktop server-based CRM and, and and get on something that is more mobile and more cloud-based. And thankfully, I did that prior to the pandemic. Otherwise, I wouldn't have looked like a very good operator. So we use the, uh, we use Salesforce, but we use the Celentica version that's through SSNC, so through Black Diamond. And then we have literally built out almost every single workflow that we would utilize on a regular basis. So it's very little effort on the team's part to learn the CRM because we really, at the end of the day, you maybe use 12 to 15 workflows 90% of the time. And we just get really good at doing them and collaborating together so that things can get done very efficiently. And so it's, you know, Linda and our team it, it deserve a lot of credit for for building a lot of that out. And 
that has really accelerated over the last two years is, is really getting very specific on how we communicate internally. We also use the Office 365 system. So we're on Teams, you know, and have different group chats. So I feel like we're doing a really good job from a, like just a communication around the clients versus the traditional method of, you know, sharing a bunch of emails or running down the hall and talking to so-and-so about one particular client. From the portfolio management side, I will tell you we ran into some issues there a few years ago because because my portfolio manager, the person implementing that, Michelle, we just got to the point where it, it got to be too much. Like rebalancing for her was taking over a month because we were doing most of it manually. We manage households on a household level, not on the account level. So we're we're doing asset location strategies and, and things we feel are in the client's best interest. But we realized that that got to be it was just too much. I either hired another person to help with trading or we looked to just actually use like a TAMP or some sort of platform that made our life easier from an execution standpoint. So so today, probably you know 20% of our business now goes through that particular platform that we utilize. And a lot of our new business is flowing that way. And And so what's the platform? Like, what did you end up doing or restructuring or going to? Yeah. So we decided on a, a fairly emerging platform or technology, which was 55 IP. And so I'd met them at a, at a conference and, you know, we were, we're very much sensitive to tax planning. And so we do a lot of Roth conversions. We talk a lot about managing tax brackets. We talk about having the right investments in the right account, like all those little like tax planning techniques an advisory firm should be using from a client's perspective. We, that's, that's one of our main value propositions to clients. And they allowed us to do many of those things. I mean, Michelle and I probably interviewed, you know, 30, 30 different platforms. And the one thing we found, and I know that it's very hard to do, is to, is to allocate on a household level versus in a, an account-based level. And s- instead of just doing like a model and account, we create a model for a household and we deploy it into each, each account. So, so they were willing to work with us to build that out. They obviously were just acquired by JP Morgan here towards the end of, end of last year. And they're, they're more known as more of like a, a tax management tool out there today. But it, so we've utilized that and it's been a good partnership for us as we, as we scale and grow and are, aren't able to sacrifice what we want to do for clients, but still deliver a similar strategy and model. And, and for that, like if they're doing the trading and rebalancing and, and kind of lit- literally doing the, the implementation managing part, I'm presuming that means they're, they're not paid like a software fee per Per account, they they're charging basis points like a TAMP does. Yep, you got it. Yep. So it's so that's where I say it's a little bit little bit of a hybrid. I mean, they're not really providing much beyond that, which is fine. They give me a good portal to be able to do proposals in when I want. They make it easy for us to manage manage the models and transition clients over from other institutions or whatever is whatever is going on in that person's situation. And then they they their trading o- overlays whatever custodial platform it is that you're already using. Correct. Yeah. So we're on Schwab. So they just, they also have limited power of attorney on those. I was going to say, I'm assuming clients actually have to do LPOAs for, for them because they've got trading. So, so you do have to kind of explain to the client, like who these people are and how they fit into the equation. Yeah. So I, I am by no means trying to be any, any way misleading, but I explain it as a technology partner because really it's there. We created the models, the portfolios, they're helping us execute and, and do all the like things like automated tax loss harvesting. They can do that for us in non-qualified accounts. You know, clients who have recurring distributions, well, they can 
they can do that on a regular basis while still keeping your model relatively in balance. Whereas, you know, us doing that on our own, we, you know, it's a lot of heavy lifting to be able to go in and see, well, where do we sell? We got to run a report and then we got to submit trades. And so it, it, it does allow us to be much more efficient in how we, how we manage the client portfolio. And can I ask just like, where does this price? I mean, what kind of, what kind of basis point cost is this? Cause I'm going to presume like you were doing your own math of like, I, you know, I can, I can hire 55 IP or I can get, you know, Michelle's sidekick and we can, and we can double up our staff and do this. So I'm, I'm, I'm presuming there, this had to be reasonably competitive from a price perspective. Yeah. So, you know, I tried to, to do my best there. And so what we have is just like a, just as we bill clients, like a descending schedule. So as we have more AUM, that fee schedule uh, goes down. And, you know, I think kind of like, like 20 to 25 basis point range is, is sort of where, where things start out. And then it, it accelerates down from there. So, so how do you, like, I am just curious how you think about this when, when you had existing team that was already doing doing some of this work and and now suddenly you're you're introducing another another player into the equation i guess it just help me understand like how do you think about this cost because just you gotta well granted you're still scaling it because not not all of your assets are on 55 ip but like if this continues to grow and goes well like you know by the time you put 300 plus million dollars onto this platform this adds this can start adding up to hundreds of thousands of dollars do you look at that as like that's a cost of doing business? That's like something to negotiate them with them on as the assets grow and 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 get higher. Is there a point where you're like, eh, if we get large enough, I'm probably going to take it back and do it internally? How do you think about this from a from a costing? Because I know for a lot of advisors, like if they've already got some trading team internally, it's really hard to send to send that out because it it just sort of feels like a, a duplicative cost or another cost layer. So I'm just curious, like you pulled the trigger, you saw something in going that direction. So what, what led you there? Growing pains, to be completely honest. It's like, we just like, to me, to me is like Michelle, who's my person that deals with that. I was called by, call her by name, but it's to train new people, to make sure that the right person to get them up to speed, to make sure you have adequate office space to all the things that of, you know, what many people refer to as human capital. That's a lot of time effort versus a, a technology partner that you can just plug in and and go and it, there's maybe a, a month learning curve and you have a, a team that understands your needs on their end and then you just off and running. To me, that's like, I don't know, I thought it was a pretty easy decision. It was like, Michelle was overwhelmed. We needed to, to do something fast. And I just felt like this was a more efficient way to operate. And I guess that kind of goes back to your your early statements about us running a, a lean team and how we do it. I, I try to look at how do we how do we scale without having to to add too much overhead because that can almost that can also like slow down slow down the growth. It's not just about having really good margins. It's like how do we efficiently do this? And you know you if you have a good relationship with technology, there's not a lot of uh it's not a lot of pushback whereas you know people are are much different, right? We're all wired. We're not, we're not wired like a, a robot. Right. Right. And so is the vision over time to get more of the clients and all of the portfolios over to 55, over to 55 IP? No. And here's why, like a lot of our clients have been 
in our existing models and strategies for a decade, to be honest with you. So to tell, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith to sell, you know, their hundred thousand dollar gains in their large cap growth fund or whatever it is, it's just it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense for them. Because fifty five IP can like you can create similar models to what you already have, but they you won't necessarily have literally identical to what you've already to what you've already got. Yeah. So a lot of our a lot of our clients have legacy mutual fund business. And so to, you know, a lot of those funds already are are charging the client, call it sixty basis points. So to just kind of layer it just it doesn't make sense from a cost perspective to transition them onto that platform. So I think it's a good blended mix. And I guess I say this a little bit cautiously, but it's truly what goes on in my head is like, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a business risk to just solely rely on one model or one strategy. And I think it's, you know, I think client, different clients want different things. And so I feel like how we manage these two different strategies that we run, they're not that much different, but they are a little bit different. So I think it allows us to blend a little bit. We have converted a fair amount of clients over to the new platform, but there's some that will always stay on in the existing models. Whereas new clients have come on, a lot of them are on the 55IP platform that we built out, but not all of them. Some of them are still going to our our old one. So so it really just kind of comes down to to managing it. And I'll be very honest, I if you told me what do I think this looks like in three years, I don't really know because technology as you, as you're more well than as anybody, I have no idea what trading and portfolio implementation looks like in our profession two to three years from now. I just knew I needed something now and I needed it fast. And this this seemed to be the the solution for us at this point in time. Interesting. And and just how do you decide? Because you said not not all new clients necessarily go to the new platform either. Like just what determines who's a 55 IP client and and who's a you know Michelle will manage it client. So I would say a couple things. One is, is there a need for tax sensitive management? That would be a, that'd be a big one. How soon will they need distributions? That's a, that's a big one. Like just general conversations around how they have been investing and what they're used to will, will drive into it. So really, uh, you know, the planning process drives what model and strategy we utilize with each client. And then we, we try to try to go from there. And so just if, if you and Michelle were doing diligence on you know all, all the zillion different choices that are out there because there's a lot i guess we're just wondering what what led you to to this in p- particular just like what what made 55 ip win the bid when there when there are a lot of choices out there yeah so the the big it really came down to two big things is that most of the platforms and not everybody so i don't want to insult those that are listening and say hey we don't you know we don't do or we do that or we don't do that but a lot of them are very like model based on an account by account basis. And so we've been managing client assets on the household level. So if you have a Roth IRA, we're not going to put bonds in that Roth IRA. If you have a non-qualified account, we're going to try to make sure that we have any like dividend or long-term capital gains oriented strategies in that account. And we'll try to keep your fixed income more in your, your IRA. So what we found is just quite simply, a lot of the platforms don't have the capabilities to do that. A lot of them had model minimums and that kind of disrupted things when you have that client that maybe has got that like $20,000 Roth IRA account and then they've got a, a million dollar IRA. And it just, it, it, a lot of them felt very disconnected and we'd had to deviate from sort of our, our, what we felt were core principles and how we manage the money. And, you know, 55 IPL offered us those two flexibilities, the ability to have influence on how we create the models 
was really nice. You know, I mean, if we if we would have wanted to have any more control than we did, I mean, we would have just had to like look at, hey, do we just want to use Orion more or use Black Diamond more, or just like the more actual rebalancing or portfolio management technologies out there. And I just knew if I went that route, then I was still going to have to hire another person. So it, it was just sort of like this process of elimination and they kind of just kept popping up on the radar. And, you know, I know they're a very, very young, early company at the time. And I just felt like it was a, you know, it was, it was just, it felt right, I guess. And and we just, we rolled with it and it's worked pretty well for us. Very cool. And, and, and I was going to ask as well, as you were talking about technology switches you made and, and, and what you chose, what, what led you to Salesforce and to Salentica? Yeah. So we, we're a Black Diamond user. So we do all our reporting and portfolio management, our portal, billing, all of that goes through Black Diamond. So in a perfect world, uh, you hope that all of those partners eventually talk to one another. And so we went out and met with them, you know, in, in, in Atlanta, I think it, I think it, no, I was in Florida somewhere and, you know, just kind of heard about the vision of how Salesforce and Black Diamond would talk to each other more. And I know they're, they're working on some integrations with, right capital. That was sort of their vision at the time. And so we just felt like that version was what most suited, like it just suited us the best. And I, again, kind of going back to my, my management philosophy, like I have no desire to like trailblaze and build a, a CRM from scratch, like getting the base sales force and build it all out. And so we, we basically put together like all of like our core workflows and processes and steps that we were doing within Juncture. And then we went to them and we said, Hey, can you create all of these things for us and how will that look like? And it wasn't perfect at first and it took us a little while to get there, but that, I mean, it became a very easy decision for me, to be honest. It's like, I want something that talks to our other systems fairly well. And I want a partner that knows our profession well as well too. So as we build and things change, they're hopefully at the forefront of that. So, okay. And, and so, and so that's part of why why an overlay like Salentica on top of Salesforce and not just like Salesforce Pure or Salesforce out of the box is you liked you liked the integrations that were already there. Yeah, and we had some relationships there, right? So it's nice to be able to call up and you know we talk to our Black Diamond person and they say you know you should talk to this person over at Salentica and they know him by name and we can have some you know some cross cross conversations there. So I just I felt more comfortable keeping like, I know it's a different company within the same company, but I felt more comfortable knowing that, hey, there are going to be some integrations. They know our space well. They should understand the needs that we have. And I, I just felt like it's going to be an easier way for us to scale that quickly. And so what's the what's the rest of the core technology stack? It, it sounds like right capital is there for financial planning software. Correct. Yep. So we've used a fairly early adopter of, of right capital. And for what we do using are working with sort of the mass affluent baby boomers, focus on tax planning, you know, doing a lot of probabilities based, what we call the retirement health stress test. It's it's fantastic. I I mean, they've built a great, a great technology in my opinion. And I don't need all of the bells and whistles of maybe any money, but I also don't need something as simple as like, you know, like an in-stream or something that's a very, very basic planning software. So this this has worked out really, really well for us. I'll tell you, you know, a lot of moans and groans when I told the team we're going to switch financial planning softwares because it's a lot of work to convert people over and and learn the new system, but we've been using it for a few years now and it's it's been a great asset for us. And so again, it sounds like ta- the the layering of tax planning was was a big part of the driver there like 
Right Capital's tax planning drove you on the planning software, 55 IPs, you know, tax, you know, household level asset location, tax savviness is what drove it on the on the portfolio management end. That's kind of the common theme here I'm seeing. Yeah, well, believe it or not, you know, Minnesota actually is one of the higher state tax states uh, in the country. You know, depending on how you measure it, we tend to usually be somewhere between five and ten on most of those those lists. So uh, we get a lot of people that are very sensitive to to taxation. And you and I both know there's really at the end of the day, end of the day only so much we can do. But if we can show that we're 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 tax focused, and here's the tools and resources that we have at our fingertips to to make sure that we grab every little bit of, you know, let's just call it tax alpha for this conversation. You know, we want to be able to to do that for them. So yeah, being very consistent in our messaging, which is, you know, a very important marketing tool, which I know we'll talk marketing. So, so actually I think on that theme, like, so let's talk a little bit about the the growth path of the firm. So I first guess just for context, you said you, you started back in 2013. Was that like transitioned from somewhere else and brought clients and then grew from there? Or was that a like, were you starting from zero back in 2013? What was the actual, like what, what started in 2013? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a cool, cool little backstory. I had been at a bank, so I'll, I'll kind of give you the long, long version, but try to speed it along. So right out of college, uh, I pretty much had my pick of all of the Wall Street firms to, to join. I had a, and the reason I had that is I was able to land a internship at Merrill Lynch in college. And I actually had that internship for three years. So by the time I graduated from college with my undergraduate, I learned for sure, learned way more at my internship than I did at any academic class in college. No, no uh, offense to them, but just because I knew that's at that point in my life, that's what I wanted to do. So when I did all of the interviewing, you know, they're like, great, you have experience, you know what, what it takes to be an advisor, you know how to do all the different marketing things to, to grow. So long story short, I ended up starting out at Morgan Stanley for the sheer sheer reason is of the big Wall Street firms, the wirehouses, they had the lowest minimums to, to, to make it after the first year. Because here I am, you know, 22 years old, hadn't shaved in a couple of weeks because I, you know, I looked like I was 15. And here I'm going to try to like, you know, cold call and beat down doors for million dollar accounts. And and do you remember like what, what, what was the requirement to... <laughs> To qualify, like what was the magic number? It was I like, do, oh. I do. So here, I'll, I'll tell you two crazy stories about that. So it was $4 million was the minimum tier. And then, you know, at that time, this is like 2005, 2006, they gave you a $24,000. You know what? I take that back. Most people were getting a, a $24,000 salary. And I think mine was like 30 or 32. And the only reason I got a little bit more was well, it's because I, I had like three offers and they all kind of knew that. So I got a little bit better of a, an offer. I think Merrill Lynch was offering a better base, but you're like minimum was eight or 10 million that first year. And I was, I was not ignorant enough to re- think that I had any chance of doing that right out of the gate. And after my first year, my first year anniversary, I remember there were 32 people in my recruiting class through like our region. And there was, I was one of three people left. It was me and one other female advisor, she had made it. And the third person had actually was still there, but he had taken a job as a client service person, wasn't even practicing as a, a financial advisor anymore. So it was like literally less than 10% after the first year. That's brutal. So so where was, so where was your number after the first year? I was like right at that number. And so I knew like, all right, the, the problem with that is, and that sounds deceiving is because once that year is up, there was like a six month transition and I'm probably missing some of the details here, but like, if I didn't really 
hightail my AUM pretty quickly. Like I might still have a job, but I wasn't going to eat because I wasn't going to make a whole heck of a lot of money. Like it's like your, your draw, basically your salary went to a draw after a certain period of time. And then you basically needed to get your, your AUM or your brokerage commissions or whatever you're doing to generate revenue needed to be enough for you could, you could offset the the draw. So, so I had a, I had a pretty like honest conversation with myself and I had like been solely focused on become an advisor. Like I was laser focused on that in, in college. I just kind of knew after a while, like the market, but it, it was like kind of tough because it's like, all right, I got I to gotta figure this out. So I started looking around to see like what other advisory positions are out there because there's obviously more than just being in the wirehouses and wh- what I knew, right? Like in Minneapolis, like is a very, very competitive market. We've got Ameriprise here. We've got Wells Fargo has a huge base, Thrivent, U.S. Bank, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Today, wealth enhancement is a huge, huge presence here in the Twin Cities. So basically, long story short is I found this job as an advisor at a bank and I was smart enough to realize all I just really needed at that time was practice, right? Like on the job training. And unfortunately, there's no way to do that very well in the financial services world other than just literally meeting with lots of people. And I thought the bank was just a small community bank would offer me that opportunity to have lots of conversations. I had a built-in target market of these bank customers. And I just, I felt like it was a great transition for me. And to be honest, it was, they, they were affiliated through LPL. So I started there probably, you know, maybe six months after this, this one year number at Morgan Stanley, I'm, I'm, I'm probably off a little bit on the dates, but I, I think good, close enough for the sake of the conversation, made this transition to the bank. And then what sort of happened next was it's true. They did have a target market and there are people to meet with, but this was a more of a small business community bank. It wasn't a retail bank that there was a line in the lobby to go see the teller. And there were like tons of introductions. Like literally after about two years, I had met about every single customer in this bank that was was ever going to come in. And so like one day I'd be doing an IRA contribution for $5,000. And then I would be talking to a small business owner about his simple IRA plan. And then I would be talking to a person who was serious about retirement. Like there were just no no consistent conversations and then as you were probably impacted and everybody else in our space, the financial crisis hit. So not only was it like incredibly difficult for everybody in our profession, but when you're an advisor in a bank, like people who would do advisory business with someone in a bank are already probably pretty conservative by nature. And so now to try to get them to do something in the middle of the financial crisis was, you know, that was like not going to happen. It was more like, hey, do you have any brokered CDs that are paying better than the, than the uh, you know, the bank's rate at that particular time? So I kind of had this like second point in my very young career of, all right, Matt, like if you want to, if you're truly going to make it in this profession and field, you need to do something different. I need to figure it out pretty quick. So I had a lot of time there in 2008 and 2009 to sort of figure figure this out. And to be honest, I was doing enough business with a little bit of a base salary to make make a living. Like I wasn't doing well, but I wasn't. I could pay my bills. I could take my you know my wife out to eat once in a while. Like we were we we're getting we we're getting by. She was going going uh, was putting her way through grad school at that time. So, but I just, I didn't feel like I was building a sustainable business. I didn't have confidence. Like my career was progressing. I was like, sort of like, I guess, treading water for lack of a better term. So long story short is after all this research and reading, I decided I was going to try seminars. It's like this, I don't know what else I'm going to do. I hate networking. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go bother people who didn't want to be bothered, but I was like, all right, 
seminars. If I, if I can get people in a room, that probably means they want to listen. And I'm more, I'm more aligned to want to talk to people that actually want to listen. And so basically what I, what I had done is I had at that time, I, but I didn't know anything about seminars. Like I didn't know anything about direct mail. I didn't know anything about how to give a presentation. At that point, I hadn't even given a presentation before, but I was desperate and I was willing to get out of my comfort zone. And so I bought a couple of a seminar systems and I just like, I dove into them and I immersed myself in it. And uh, in 2010, I held my very first live uh, seminar on financial planning. At that time, it was actually six ways to manage your money during a financial crisis was what the headline of the presentation and the the mailer were because you know fear based marketing tends to work best. But I had an aha moment there, and then I'm gonna come back to my story. But I was like, you know, at some point we we just aren't going to be in a financial crisis forever. And then what am I going to do? And so that's that's when I made the shift to doing more educational seminars. But but what what's a funny funny story? And this is a great lesson for for anybody just in being being prepared. So I had at this point it was a, it was a dinner seminar. So I'll, I'll kind of paint the picture. I'd sent out this this mailer. I think I'd sent out like seven thousand postcards for this mailer. It was it was at a local restaurant down the road that was pretty nice to me. You know, it was a good setting. It was like an Italian setup. They had a room in the back that would hold about 50 people. I remember this. I paid for that very first seminar on a credit card because I didn't have I didn't have all that cash to be able to to do it. But I was desperate, right? Not a smart decision, but in hindsight it makes a good story to tell today, right? So I practiced my seminar, I don't know a hundred times and I made my slides and I made this amazing presentation. And I'll tell you the most uncomfortable thing to do is, is giving a seminar presentation in front of your wife who knows nothing about personal finance. So it's a good way to get some feedback from a, you know, quote unquote, a, a retail audience, right? Like <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's a good way to get rid of feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, I literally, as I'm telling you this, I can envision we're in our little town home and I'm standing like next to the kitchen, like bar counter. And she's sitting in a chair in the living room looking at me like, I have no clue what you're talking about right now, but I'm going to smile because I'm happy for you. <laughs> so, so this, so the day before I go to the restaurant and I like check my AV, I talk to the manager, you know, I'm trying to be organized and prepared because that was, I was like, I was so nervous. I was so prepared for it. So then the night of the presentation, I get there early, do everything that I'm supposed to do to be responsible and prepared for it. And my PowerPoint doesn't work. My laptop is not syncing up with their projector. I'm stressing out. I'm, it's not working. It's like 30 minutes from start time. I'm like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Come to find out like minutes before we start that literally that day, the company that services all of that technology came and did some sort of upgrade and they thought they had left with it all working and it wasn't working. So here I have a room of like, literally, I had like 50 people there that night, Mike. I was like so jacked that's up. That's a good so turn. Yeah, that's like a good turnout for like first first stab on seminar marketing. Oh my God. You, you, you should have, I mean, I was so ecstatic. It's probably one of like the, the most excited times I'd ever been in in my life. Uh, Cause I, I mean, I can, I could tell you every step of what I did that day. I remember driving home that night and I remember who I called after I finished that seminar that night. So here's the crazy part. So I, I was, and through the seminar system I had bought it, it had told us to print out all of the slides on and put them in a folder along with like your feedback form. And I wrote a little letter to everybody. And basically what I had was each, each, when you print PowerPoint, you can do three slides to a page and then you got some lines for some notes to the side. I literally 
gave that my very first seminar ever using that handout. And I was like, if you can look really closely to that slide, you can see these words right here. And I kind of turned it into a little bit of comedy. But had I not practiced that seminar so much where I knew it in and out, I would have been petrified to stand up there and try to give a presentation where I didn't have any slides. Right. You've done it so many times. Where it's like, I already know what the points are and the lines are and the jokes are and all of that. I just have to you know, yuck it up a little now to, to say like, and, and the totally awesome picture on the next slide that you probably can't see because it's in like two point font on this printout. Yeah. If you get your magnifying glass out here, I made a joke about how the dinner was going to be on the restaurant that night, you know, because they screwed up the projector for me. But long story short is I got, I, I think I got like about 19 appointment requests that night. Uh, I think I, I'd got about half the room to book an appointment with me. And I remember I got like six new clients and roughly three and a half million of new assets from the very first seminar I ever did. Wow. I mean, that's just, those are some, those are some big numbers, right? Just general advisory fee schedules. Like that's tens of thousands of dollars of new revenue. Yeah. I mean, I, that was, that was the, like that night I kind of felt like, like some stress relieved. And I was like, I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to make it, you know, granted it's just one, but I'm like, I, f- I feel like I have something to run on here. Like this is a start. I can get, I can get going from here. So I just, I kind of, I kept doing that same seminar for a while. Ironically for like the first year, year and a half, the, the best result I ever got was from that first seminar. So, you know, sympathy is probably what, how I did really well on that, that first seminar, but I was smart enough to realize like this, this type of presentation this format of you know fear-based marketing, unfortunately, it got people there, but we ha- it was a good presentation. It just it wasn't going to be sustainable longer term because as the economy changes, the topics were going to change. And so I had seen a few different, more like educational class-based marketing systems. I'm like, this is much more of my style. I can run this year round. It doesn't matter what market conditions are like, there's always going to be people needing retirement planning. And as people get closer to retirement, they're going to want to come to classes like this. There was, from what I learned at that time, nobody really doing anything similar to that in my area. And so when I started running those, it it became very predictable for me to know, all right, when I send out 10,000 mailers, I'm probably going to get between 30 and 40 households that sign up. And from those 30 to 40 households, if I do a good job, uh, presenting, I should get probably roughly 60 to 65% of those people to come in to have a first appointment with me. And of that 65, probably two thirds of those will go through our, our what my planning process was at that time. And then from there, I should be able to hopefully, you know, close half to two thirds of those clients to become long-term relationships with us. Like I literally just got better and better at managing the data and knowing what to expect each time I did these seminars. And then as I got better at it, I was able to scale from maybe doing two mailings a year to three, then to four. And I, I believe the the most I ever did in, in one year, I think was eight, but really it was usually kind of in the range of four to six. So let me let me like run through these numbers with me again. So I'm just trying to process. Like you sent out 10,000 mailers, we'll call it like 40 households sign up. 60, I think it's, if it goes well, like 60% of those make an appointment. So like of the 40, 20 to 25, make an appointment. Of those, it sounds like your process was you do an initial appointment, then you invite them to go through an initial planning process with you. So two thirds of those do that appointment. So maybe like 16 of the 24 move forward to that stage. And 
maybe half of those ultimately become clients. So half of the 16 takes down to eight. So like you, you get like six, you, you do, you do the whole run with all the refinements that you did over time, like six to eight clients pop out of you. Yeah. And for, and for just to be very transparent is like, when I give you that number of 40, that's when we do a mailer, we're always doing two classes. So you have like a Tuesday or a Thursday class to go to. So all that isn't happening in one seminar. It's spread over two groups. Okay. So, so, so in practice, like you're hoping to get, you'll do two dates and you're hoping to get 20 people to show up at each of two days. Yeah. yeah. 20 households. So probably 20 households would usually equate to maybe 30 people. Like that's a good, that's a good, good seminar class. I mean, what I learned is actually when the class gets, when the room gets really big, you actually ha- get worse numbers because it's less engagement and people don't feel as connected to you because you're in like this auditorium setting with all these different people. So I think kind of right around 20 to 25 is sort of that like sweet spot where you've got enough people that, are there to hopefully get something out of it. But at the same time, it allows you to still have some engagement, answer some questions, try to build a little bit of rapport and, and relationship with the people as you as you go through that class. Interesting. And so and so you're doing like you're doing two to four of these a year, because I guess like it takes a month plus just to gear up for the whole thing, I'm presuming, right? Like figure out what your top's gonna be, prepare mailers, get them sent out. You have to send them out a few weeks in advance, then they do their their sign up, then you get them to the webinar, then you meet with them afterwards, then you do the follow-up planning process, then you do the follow-up meetings, then if they become clients, you got to onboard them. Like just, it takes a couple of months to kind of run the cycle from start to finish. So you run one of those in a quarter and you pick up one the next quarter and now you've basically done four in a year. Yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, I I think there's going to be, it's never perfect, but you're probably looking at like a 60 day cycle that people go through, right? I mean, you, you wrap up the class, they request an appointment. It's a week or two to get them in the office. Then they decide to go through the process. It's a couple more weeks and then another couple more weeks pass before you get to the proposal phase. And then once they implement, you got to do all the ACADing and transfers, which take a couple more weeks, right? So it's, it's, you know, it's really probably like a, in some cases, a 60 to 90 day process with people. And, you know, not everybody's like just chomping at the bit to, to get to come in a week later. And so there's a little bit of, a little bit of chasing involved. And, you know, we built out systems and how we want to try to do follow up and, and get people to, to, to come in. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, but I think generally you're, you're on the right track there. And, and what kinds of assets would you see? flowing from this or revenue flowing from this like just when you get down uh you know we make close six to eight clients out of this and then wash rinse repeat is that still similar to the earlier numbers like eight clients averaging half a million each is about four million of assets like those kinds of numbers or higher or lower like what would yeah, you yeah i would say, I, I mean i would say a lot of years that was probably very close it was very close to that number but i don't want to i don't want to over overshoot so i'd probably say a little bit maybe maybe 10, 15% less than that. And so here, here's the, here's the cool thing about the market that we target, we target is we're targeting that like pre pre retiree. Typically the people coming to our seminars don't have a financial advisor currently, or have never had one before or a planner. They've been more do it yourselfers just because they're just basically saving in their retirement plans. So when they start out with us, we might not capture all of their wealth at that point in time, they might just have, you know, Bill and Sally have this $300,000 rollover that they need some help with, but they also have a million dollars in their 401k plans that we'll help them with right now. But it's obviously not something that we'll have under our uh, direct discretion and bill on initially. And so in those early years, to be completely honest, like I just, 
I took on everybody that I thought was going to be a good long-term client. And, you know, it's, it's the same, whether it's a mistake or not, like I was, it was totally a volume thing for me in the early years. And so as, as we've grown, I've become much more selective. And so I would say because of that, my numbers have actually, when I've was doing seminars would be a little bit less just because I was just making sure we were finding the right fit for the the people that I wanted to work with. But yeah, I, I mean, it, it seems to be that more often than not, we're capturing a portion of their assets at that point in time, but there is, is future potential to help them more, which also then obviously equate to us capturing more revenue. So, so what does this look like from a, a numbers perspective? So I guess like, I'm just, I'm just worrying how this gets down to the math of like what, what you spend and what you get and how you think about it. So if, if, you know, if you go through the cycle and you get your six to eight clients of a couple hundred thousand dollars each, we're kind of, you know, probably like $3 million of new assets, give or take a little, roughly $30,000 of new revenue if we're just pegging 1% to make the math nice, around and easy. So do the seminar, get through the process. You may end up with six to eight clients, 3 million of, of new assets, $30,000 of revenue over the next 12 months because these stretch out over time, right? It's not like we, it's not like we get the dollars up front. You get your first quarterly billing three months from now. So I guess, A, like, does that, does that kind of sound like the right neighborhood of what you would see? And then like, what does it actually cost you on the front end to do this whole process to get down to $30,000 in new revenue? Yeah. So when I first started, I'd say seminars were probably in that, like, keep in mind, I'm, I wasn't, you know, like dinner seminars are completely different than just doing like an educational seminar. So let's just talk about educational for this conversation because it's basically where we spend all of our efforts. A mailer today, I want to say costs us in the low $7,000 figure to do the full mailing, get the brochures, first class mail, have it delivered when we want to do, right? So to me, that's probably a good figure, maybe another 500 to 1,000 of additional supplies like course books and printouts and those types of things. So somewhere in that seven to $8,000 range. So from a, a recuperation of cost, how you laid it out is very similar to how I think about it. So we don't do any annuity production or anything like that. And I don't mean this in a condescending fashion, but the majority of people out doing seminars today are typically bolting on fixed index annuities with that. That's especially true in the dinner seminar, I guess, circuit, if you will. So I don't have that like incoming commission right off the bat when a client comes on that basically pays for that seminar right off the right off the bat. So we're really doing the majority of our revenue in in these like recurring relationships. But one of the things I decided to start doing in boy, maybe 2014, 2015 is, you know, I was I was getting a lot of volume. Like I was seeing a lot of people, things were starting to really accelerate. And so I decided to start charging a planning fee on the front end. And really what it was, was just really, you know, in the, in the internet marketing world, they called a a liquidator offer, but it's basically is, Hey, I want to charge them enough to show that they're serious and that they'll value this financial plan that will put, you know, six to eight hours of time prepping for them. But I'm not trying to make it a profitable endeavor for us and our team. I'm just trying to like kind of cover my staff's time for doing it. But I know that if they're willing to pay, I started out doing $500 plans. Then I tested $750. I've tested $900. We just, we typically do $750 today. And, but what that does is I know they're much more likely to become a client now because they have bought into the process. They've 
at least made some type of commitment, although it's not a huge financial commitment. And then it's our job to demonstrate value and allow them to like essentially test drive how we work with people. And what that's done is it's made our marketing much more predictable in the fact that, all right, when people sign up to do a plan with us, we we know like roughly how many will become clients. And we know that, hey, when we do a do a seminar and X amount of people come in, like roughly this is the amount of people that go through our planning process. So we've been able to refine the metrics to, to continue to make them predictable, but now we are have a little bit more control over our time. Because you're just, you're making sure you're not working with clients or prospects who at the end of the day aren't, aren't really actually going to move forward. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that I've been able to provide a lot of goodwill and help people over the years. I don't want to give off that impression, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still a, I'm still a business and I was doing a lot of free financial plans and you, you would be sitting there with, you know, the, this lovely couple that you're like, how in the world we can help you in so many different ways, but how in the world can you not see that you should, should hire us? I think it's frustrating after a while. So what I just sort of realized, like if, if the people aren't, aren't bought into the fact that they maybe either want, want help or need help, like I'm, I'm just not going to give them, you know, five or six hours of my time and my team's time in order to, in order to do that. Well, and and so I guess in practice, that also helps shore up the amount of revenue that drives from from a seminar because now there's you know a couple thousand dollars of planning fees that may come through as well, which just smooths out first year revenues since assets may not always move quickly or maybe they do part with you and you'll get more later, but it takes time to get there. So it just uh, stabilizes the revenue a little bit more. Yes, you're right though. It did, it did end up having an influx of revenue that allowed us to cover a lot of our marketing costs, which then in turn really make our, our internal rate of return numbers look really well when you look at return on marketing spend. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm just thinking at the math of this, you know, you're, you're, you're in for call it $8,000, right? Mailer plus supplies for events that make, that may kick out technically not not even just $30,000 over the next year but much of that is in assets and our management clients that that's that's annually recurring right you're 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 building your business you're building your recurring revenue over time so you know, if, if a client's going to be around for many many years like that that could ultimately be like 100 plus thousand dollars of revenue over the next several years cumulative off of one $8,000 marketing event Life's pretty good be, because of that today, Michael, is because we've we've built awesome relationships. Like I can't believe that I've met some of these awesome clients that work with us. And it's not just like clients who have millions of dollars. Like literally, I've made friends with so many of these people. And I can't believe that they they came to one of my classes because of a brochure. They entrusted us with their wealth. They've worked with me now for, you know, some of them over 10 years, and I know them like as well as anybody and all started from like a mailing that showed up in their mailbox one day. Like it's pretty cool. You know, it makes an interesting point as well of just how it adds up over time. Cause as you noted, a lot of, a lot of seminar marketing gets driven these days by folks that are selling annuity products. So you just think about the math again, like if, if your seminar is going to produce $3 million of new assets, right. If, if you charge the traditional 1% of advisory fee, like it's, $30,000 over the next year. And if you do a good job serving them over time, you get to earn that fee again in future years. And you know it, it can add up to a big number over time. If you're in the, I'll call it like the traditional world of annuity sales with upfront commissions in a in a 5 to 7% commission world, I know some annuities are 
at lower payouts today. But at least if we if we go back ten years to when you were starting, seven percent was still pretty popular, yeah, or higher, right? Like three million dollars is two hundred and ten thousand dollars of new revenue for what might be an eight thousand dollar marketing spend. So if you ever wonder, like, you know, why do you see so many <laughs> mailers for seminar dinners for annuities, like? Just think think about that. Think about that math, right? Even even if the maybe the product doesn't convert as as well, like even if you're doing two million of new assets and it's one hundred and forty thousand dollars of commissions for a seven thousand dollar mailer, like you could be doing twenty x the return on your marketing spend. That's why you see so much marketing. <laughs> That's why you see so many of those events. I've been to some of these, uh, you know, FMO, IMOs, like the insurance marketing or organizations that really like help groom and, and you know, they're really the marketing engine behind a lot of these, these advisors or agents, however you want to label them. But literally there are, there are, you know, thankfully people aren't putting a hundred percent of someone's wealth into the annuities. Right. So that, that would be a, a very extreme example, but you know, a lot of them are doing, you know, 30 to 50% of a client's assets in there. If the client was bought into it, but there's a lot of them that would literally just even be like, "Oh, if I can get you know a hundred or a two hundred thousand dollar annuity sale, that will will cover my marketing." You like literally just one, like one one person who strokes a check for two hundred fifty thousand dollars of premium can still two x your marketing investment. Exactly. So there's a lot of these guys who are are or gals that are fitting this model that we're discussing and quite frankly they seem miserable to me because they're now doing you know 50 plus seminars a year because once that sale is complete they have to go to the to the next one and i was like number one i'm not you know i have no problem owning like i'm not a huge fan of annuities uh, for a lot of different reasons i think there's a very small group of people that 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 they're suitable and make sense for, but that's just my professional opinion. I just didn't think it was right for people. And I just, I want to have long-term relationships with these folks. And I just knew like, if I could just incrementally grow that over time, it would not only, it would create a better business because it's more consistent revenue. I'd be happier because of it. Cause I wasn't always having to chase. It was in the client's best interest. I just, I felt like if I could just kind of keep going at this slowly over time. And thankfully I had a big enough base that I could continue to reinvest those marketing dollars. It just, it really would start to compound on itself. I, I'm just, I'm so I, so I guess that my question is like, how do you like, how do you think about seminar marketing and distinguishing yourself and what you do from all the other people who are you know, using dinner seminars to sell annuities, right? Just it's, you know, if you're trying to hold out to people for an advice service and that's their prior experience around seminars that even gets tough in and of itself because they're expecting something very different from you. I guess just how, how do you think about it and look at the at the seminar space and just being competitive with someone who can like 5X your return on the same in marketing investment and might outspend you, outcompete you, out try to outmarket you, whatever it is, because they just actually make a heck of a lot of money to do so. Yeah. So I, I think at this point, I, I'm fairly confident I can, I can, I don't want to spend with the best of them, but if, if I really need to, I feel like I can, I can reinvest what we need to, to, to be able to grow. Marketing really at the end of the day is really a, a, it's a numbers game. And I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. And there's all these little things you can do to slowly stack the odds more in your favor, right? Like have a better copy, have a better offer, design a better mailer. But I, I think really how you stack the odds more in your favor is the authenticity of the presentation and how you connect with the audience. Like, you know, at times, every mailer 
for any financial seminar is probably going to draw people. And certain mailers are going to do well in certain times and other ones are going to do better in, in other times. And so I, I'm not going to sit here and say my mailer always draws the best because I know that's completely false. I'm sure there's plenty of, of people out there that, that at least from a direct mail perspective, draw better than me. But I feel like with the authentic, authenticity and the education and stating that we're a fiduciary and explaining our financial planning process and literally like, hey, you've been to these presentations before. They talk about annuities. Let me make sure that you really understand what an annuity is, what it really does, how it works, how much it costs, and who are the people that it might actually be suitable for, right? So if you just do those types of things, you now build trust with that person sitting at the table. And I'm fairly confident they're much more likely to come and talk to me versus that person that is trying to convince or sell them of what they should do. All I'm telling them is, hey, we're here to help and we'll give you advice if you want it. And so, so like what, I, I guess, like what systems do you use now to do this? I mean, are, if you, have you built your own thing? Are there vendors out there that you find kind of work for queuing this up? Yeah, I've, t- I've tested everything under the sun, multiple mailing houses. I've tested digital ads to webinars. I mean, pretty much anything that's out there, I have most likely uh, tested it at some point. It's just, just a part of, it's part of marketing is you got to always be testing and, and trying to see. So there, there's probably one company out there that a lot of people have heard of. Um, and this was something I kind of modeled after in the early days. Uh, it's a company called FMT Solutions. They basically have like a, a a canned retirement planning course. And they've built like a whole business out of this. So back in like 2010, when I first started doing these, that was like really useful for me because it was already FINRA approved because I was still duly registered with with LPL. And then as, as that has progressed, we mostly utilize all of our own content. So I have a, a a retirement tax class I've built. We have a class on social security. We've got a Medicare class. We've got a, a two night retirement planning class that we've built out over time. And so you see patterns and consistencies of the things people are interested in hearing about the questions that they ask. And then we usually tailor our, our content uh, to those topics. So you started kind of buying, I guess we got just pre-built PowerPoint presentations from FMT. And, and now you're in a world of I'm pretty used to what works and what doesn't. We're building our own things based on the kinds of questions we get for the clients that we know these things resonate with. I mean, honestly, like in full disclosure, I haven't probably done a, a live seminar in over a year and a half because of because of the pandemic and and Jeff in my office is doing most of those today. But you know, like when I went in and spoke, like I might talk for a half hour and never have left one side. I might just have the whiteboard. I might just be talking. And so you need to have content. But once you start doing these, you start to you start to tell a story the whole time and you start to to give examples. And before you know it, you're you're just you're naturally going through what you want to talk about and you're not stuck going from slide to slide. Like I I can say with certainty there's probably nights where I've spoken, I like st- I used less than a third of the slides that I probably should have shown the people because I was just talking about what needed to be talked about and the questions that brought that came up in that presentation allowed us to have an in-depth conversation about a certain topic. And so I, I'm much more of one that kind of lets things sort of happen organically and, and flow from there. And that's really where just owning our own content makes that easier for me to do. So what about from the the mailer end of just how do you how do you how do you get your ten thousand mailers out there? Like who, who does that and how does that work? 
Yeah. So that's, that's actually much easier than people realize. I mean, if you, you know, a lot of printing companies will do direct mail for you. There are a few vendors out there that will do it specifically to financial services company. I find them all to be very similar. So my criteria is, is really simple. We don't, we don't get like as granular as some of the other. I think it was maybe, I think you maybe had John Wern, Wern's on once for the old uh, chief marketing officer for wealth enhancement, who's also in town here. Like they are, he is an incredible marketer. Like he is, there's a reason why they've grown. And like they, I remember listening to that one and he was talking about how they knew what like type of car they drove and like they got very, very granular in what they were looking for. I, I didn't do, because they were then peppering that person with lots of, of mailing pieces and different content and they're hitting them from every different angle. What I, what I did is I was very simple. You needed to own a home. You there were certain income requirements that I went that I had arranged for, and then there were age requirements that I went off of. And then lastly was just geography, basically like what zip codes were you in. And I just literally went based off of that because it it gave me enough people in that market to make it work. And and that's all criteria that a a, a mailer firm would would have or or can manage because you know. Welcome to the marketing world. Marketers actually know creepy amounts of stuff about us already, and this exists in large databases. Correct. So, like Info USA, like if you're someone that's listening and just kind of wants to know, like, well, how many people like live in my area based on this criteria? You can go into Info USA for free, and it will it won't give you the names, but you can do a sorting list of all of the. It'll give you a number of individuals that live or households that live within that particular demographic group. And then can can they actually do your you know your list and mailer if if you want like is Info USA actually a I I haven't used them personally but I'm yeah I'm pretty sure that you can buy the list for those that are thinking of doing this you can call your local printing you know there's printing companies I have a, a guy here in town that does some for me he doesn't know anything about our profession he's just like a print guy I get him my mailer they're able to mail them out we just get the list I mean that's one solution I have another person out on the the East Coast who I just basically give him my demographics he runs with it, does them all for me and uh, away we go. So it, it's, I think it, just with a little bit of basic market research, I think that who, anybody that wants to do them will find like a, a reasonable solution right out of the gate. So, so this whole, like, I have to find a super specialized company that does mailers in the financial services world, da, 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 like we're, we're totally overthinking it. Like you can get a list from Info USA and take it to your local printing firm and just say, I, I want to send these things to these people and and they can do it. Who makes the like who designs the mailer and the solicitation? Is that is that another like that's a thing I would get from FMT kinds of companies? You know, they're I they're a company that does do that. I know that for a fact. But I, you know, I, I kind of enjoy enjoy that stuff. I've read a lot of, you know, any I guess probably the anything by Dan Kennedy, if you're a marketing person, Dan Kennedy's one of the best direct response marketers that's probably ever, ever lived. Um, so any book by Dan Kennedy is really good. And so I've just basically took what I learned from him and other marketers and just sort of like, again, kind of using my basic compound effect type principle. Like if we can just do all these things a little bit better, let's test this a little bit differently. And if that draws a little bit better, we start to get these incremental incremental results that start to improve over the course of time. So I, like as far as like the brochures, I pretty much kind of like own all of that myself and just work with a graphic designer to create create those on my end. Because you got you got used to how to do them after you did them for a while. 
yeah, yeah. And I want to, I want to own it, want it to be a little bit exclusive. And I kind of feel like that's a little bit of our intellectual property, although like, you know, not that hard to find them if you, if you know somebody that's getting them in the mail, but you know, marketers are, Tony Robbins calls it modeling, but good, good marketers are good at copying what everyone else is doing that works. And, you know, I'm, I'm totally guilty of doing that too. So I try to, I try to be a little bit different from time to time and at least give myself a little bit of a, a leg up there. And, and just the whole idea of like, we get so much mail. We get so much, frankly, like just junk mail that hits all of our mailboxes over time. I, I, you know, every time I talk to advisors about like, and, and we've seen this in our kids' research on marketing as well, that just seminar marketing with paid mailers continues to show up with, with solid metrics that, you know, I feel like the average person just like, really in 2021, when there's like email and digital and all this and, so much of what comes through our mailbox feels like it's just solicitations that we throw out. Like, I mean, your, your numbers kind of speak for themselves, but I guess I still feel like I have to voice the collective question asked, like, really? Like <laughs> mailers in 2021 is still a thing. I, I will, uh, I'll just leave it at that. If people want to think <laughs> that that's fine by me. <laughs> just fewer people sending competing marking, but like, I mean, do you worry that this, this saturates or oversaturates at some point or just like, Hey, we're still on the tail end of 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day. Like, doesn't matter if they've gotten their mailers for five years, they only got close to retirement this year. So they're going to notice for the first time. I've told my team that this is going to stop working for like six or seven years now. And we're still here. So keep riding the horse, I guess, right? Like, it's like, it's honestly basic. I try to practice very basic business principles. Like, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Like, if, if it works, just keep doing it until it doesn't work, even though it's super boring. Like, I'll be completely honest. Like, I got so sick of doing seminars after a while, but I was able to impact so many people. And I, I, it was a, it was a very emotional process because I would literally dread going to these seminars because my kids were young. I'd like literally maybe get a chance to run home and see them and grab, you know, shovel down some food quick before I go and do my seminar for the night. But then when I get done with that seminar, like people come up with a, like a smile on their face and they'd say, thank you. And you're like, this was really helpful. And then I'd leave feeling like I was on top of the world. Like it was such an, it was such an emotional roller coaster. but I knew like we have to keep doing these in some capacity because it is such a benefit to the community and we're not stuck having to like force some sort of marketing that doesn't work or anything like that. And so that's where I just essentially, I'd hired another advisor to help me do these classes. And I taught him all of the the tricks and things that I've learned to sort of get better at it and, and position yourself well. And, you know, he's, he's doing 90% of the, the speaking and teaching that we do today. And it, it is, it's working amazing. He actually just, he just did one on, on zoom last night. And one of my staff listened in on it because she had never heard him before. And she had commented on how he's such a, he's incredibly well-spoken, does an amazing job talking and explaining everything. And so, so that's, that's my way of not trying to break something that is working is by really just shifting to who's doing it. Well, and then that was going to be my, my follow-up question as well is just, so now we've had a giant pandemic and no one can show up for a, for a seminar. So like, did you pitch, did you pivot to a virtual world and doing webinars? If you just decided to take a pause, it's just like death of seminar marketing, or are you just raring to go as soon as we can gather in physical locations again? Like what, what is, what is the pandemic done to your marketing world? Yeah. So obviously last year it, 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 
brought it to a screeching halt. I, I don't think, I think by and large, most firms were were at least those that were doing outbound or direct response marketing of any sort were sort of in the same in the same boat. We just all sort of went through this period where we kind of were like in our own little zone for a while and just kind of wait waiting things out. So we have, I'll be very clear, like digital seminars, webinars, whatever, they don't work as well. I at least for me they don't. I'm sure somebody has perfected it and is doing incredibly well. And, you know, to your statement on direct mail works, they're they can say, nope, digital marketing doesn't work and it's working just fine for for them. So we have we're testing right now. So we're in, you know, we're in March as we're recording this, but um, we're testing some direct mail to Zoom class is what we are testing right now to see how that will produce. And I don't have results for you yet, Michael, is our our attendance rates are actually about the same. We had probably 40 or so households sign up. I can tell you with probably 90% certainty that the appointment request rate and the amount of people that become clients likely will not be as as high as, as live just because you, you miss the human element. I just, I don't think digital will ever produce as well as in-person because people want to work with people they like, no like and trust, right? It's the Dale Carnegie thing. And so it's hard to do that when you're looking at somebody through a computer screen. So I guess the good news at least is like, you can do more of them faster because there's less logistics and stuff to coordinate. If you're, if you're sending them to a Zoom class, then, you know, physical setup at a, at a restaurant or other location for an educational event. But, but you may have to do them on a faster cadence because the the conversion rate you're just not expecting to be as high when you don't get the in-person connection part. I mean, it's 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 you know it's great in that the fact that we're still able to help a lot of people and provide value and and do all of those things, which which I, I truly duly feel a sense of responsibility to educate our community and help them with it. And it's such a very lucky the way we can market the way we do, and and even if people don't become client, I, th- I think they still leave with a good experience and they're they're thankful for the the time and it was a, it was a good investment of their time. But yeah, I, I just I think when I look at it, I you know if if we can produce reasonable results and it's you know it's obviously not as much time intensive to do it we'll you know we'll do what we can to try to just keep moving until we can get back to whatever that new normal is you know if, if that's a long ways out then you know we're going to ha- I'm going to have to make some adjustments and change and we're you know we're trying to do better about being more SEO friendly have more digital content things like that um that I probably was very much behind the ball on for a lot of years but to be candid with you I was I was growing at the rate I wanted to grow at and so I was like going back to like if it's not broken don't fix it mentality right so what what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business boy it's really cool to be a boss, be able to have like a, it's a, this may sound weird, but I didn't know that it would be this rewarding to provide careers for like speaking to the business front. It's really cool to have people that will work hard for you and dedicate a lot of their time. And I love them like they're my own family. It's really cool to be able to provide people that opportunity. That's probably the number one thing that I've learned in the last couple of years. And and I guess I am wondering how the corollary to that just we never we never really got into it when you were sharing your story earlier. But what, what when did you switch to being the boss and and not and not with the bank anymore? Yeah. So one one like big transition in there, and this is this goes back to the first time you and I ever ever communicated. I wrote you a little email asking about buying a practice. I think back in 2012, and you had wrote me back like a a short essay. I so I had this idea like when I left, I wanted to leave the bank to start my own practice, 
And I knew that because the seminars are working and I'm on a grid at a bank and I'm paying for my own marketing. And so I was like, it's just, it's a natural progression. But if I could find a practice to buy that had some basic infrastructure and staff in play in place, then I'm going to be able to grow a lot faster. And it's going to be a lot stressful than me, like literally getting office space, hiring support staff, doing doing IT, like all those things. And to me, that was worth a fair amount of money to do that. So I was able to find, I got, I got very lucky. Like I'm, I'm a big believer if is like, in order to get lucky, you have to take, you have to take risks. And if you take risks and position yourself to get lucky, lo and behold, luck happens. So I know there's a lot of advisors out there today that are, that are trying to buy practices and based on what practices are selling for and what we're seeing, it's clearly very much a a seller's market. You know, I, I wanted to buy a practice, but how I found that practice is I was very diligent and did a lot of networking with the people that would be in the know and those particular practices became available. And I started to kind of build a little mini list of potential candidates. And then I just did a really good job of building relationships with those people over a year or two. And then all of a sudden I found one that that was really a great fit and it was in the town that I'd already lived in. And I was doing marketing already there. I, I'll just put it this way. I did, I did what I felt like I needed to do to make sure that I got that practice because I knew, hey, I was like not even, I don't even think I was 30 years old yet. And just how did you find the, like the prospects you wanted to go after in the first place? Was this uh, like search around on the like SEC's IAPD website where you like, like networking your way around FPA chapters and like looking at who seems like they're within retirement age. Like, right. Well, a little bit of all of the above, to be honest, you know, and, and I'm not, I don't, I, I kind of say that tongue in cheek, but I know that there's a lot of people out there doing that. Um, so, you know, I looked at, there's different recruiting people for different firms and just starting to have a few conversations. So thankfully I, I probably, I probably had about five or six, like, reasonable conversations. And the practice that I, I purchased was the one when I left that meeting, I was like, if I can, I got to get this practice. Like I, I remember telling myself, I need to figure out a way for this, for this to work for the seller and for this to work for me. Like this is just, it, it just, it made sense. Like I could tell you had a, had a great staff. It was a great location, similar views on how we do business planning oriented, mostly fee-based. And so I just, I, Hopefully, I, didn't, I don't think I came across too aggressive, but I I was very open. Like I I really want this, and and just how like how big of a team was it? I mean, what was what was the structure that made it so appealing? Yeah, so it was three staff. You know, it's probably roughly a hundred clients, and it was mostly already advisory fee based. Most clients had a financial plan that was created, and they very similar in how we managed portfolio models, which to be honest, at that time were most of us were running very similar models regardless. But I just, I could tell that this individual always did the right thing. Like I just, I had a good vibe about him. And when I met the staff, you know, they joke, I was very quiet at the beginning when I was going through the process with the seller. And it's like, I just wanted to be a really good listener. And so I just wanted to ask questions and observe. And I just, I had a hunch that they would be a good team to work with. And Although I want, definitely wanted the the assets and the revenue in the base, I just I was more concerned about getting a good stable setup for people to sort of like help me transition and and get and get going again and and pick back up on the momentum that I had been building over the previous couple of years. So, what was the low point for you on this journey? There's always a lot of them, but I would say honestly, it's probably like you know I'm pretty fortunate. I haven't had a lot of low professional points in the last 
last couple of years, but you know, like it's just, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to make it in our business, Michael. Like it really is. I would say, although there's a lot of work that all of us that are our practice owners, myself included, could do a better job to, to groom financial advisors, to be mentors, to do all of these things, to help, you know, the younger, younger generation progress, progress, but it's, it's, it's really like a sales job those first few years. And if you're not really good at selling, but you're a really good advisor, then it, it's kind of tough. And so I feel like for me, just sort of like failing those first couple of years was sort of like my low point. Is like I had this dream and I wasn't sure if I was actually going to be able to fulfill it. So anything then that you you wish you'd done differently, or I guess for you another way, like what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from 15 years ago to maybe make it slightly less sucky in the first few years? All of it sooner and faster. <laughs> <laughs> should have done more seminars faster, should have scaled up faster. I wish I'd found Jeff, who's my other advisor faster. You know, like I, I think it seems to be like when people make like that big transition or that big career move, they look back if it was successful and they always say like, I just wish I would have done it sooner. And I'm, I'm completely guilty of that. But to be realistic, I mean, I was, I was still in my twenties and I needed to mature and get more experience. And I'm pretty lucky, Michael. I don't, I, uh, it's worked pretty well for me. And I just, I don't think that I, I have a lot of regrets when I look back on, on what we've done and in, in building a practice. And I feel like we've done it the right way. And we've always tried to do what's right for the client and never sacrifice those things to, to try to move the business forward. And I'm pretty proud of that. So any other advice you would give just younger or newer advisors coming into the business and, and trying to get their career started today? Yeah. Get a mentor, get a couple of them you know, just be a sponge. And I know that's like a very cliche, simple thing to do, but you know, what, what I did, you know, my, one of my big breaks was getting that internship when I was 19 years old at Merrill Lynch. Like I got lucky. Why did I get lucky? Cause I put myself in a position to get lucky. The reason I got that internship, believe it or not, was not because I was like, I had the most, most impressive resume. I didn't really have much at all. Like I grew up on a farm. So my references were like my dad and I built houses in the summer. So I was like a part-time carpenter, like not really anything that, a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch is going to be like, I want to hire this guy. The reason I got it is I wrote, wrote that guy, a, that gentleman, a handwritten thank you note. And I was the only person of all the people that applied for it that wrote him a handwritten thank you note for the interview. And I got it. And that, like, that probably was very instrumental in my success. I hope I would have still been successful had I not done that, but it, it definitely definitely help. So I, th I thank my mom for that one. Like she always made me write handwritten thank you notes for all these like gifts and things that I had done along the way. So um, I owe her for that one, but get a mentor. Like I, I just, I was fortunate to, like, I had this mentor when I interned. And then when I, those, that little bit of time I had at Morgan Stanley, I wasn't afraid to ask some of the higher producing advisors at that time, Hey, can I just like sit in your office for a couple hours while you're working? And if, you know, you don't mind me asking you a few questions or just sharing with sharing with me what you're doing at that point in time, like you can learn a lot from those, those successful people. And so I could go on and list a whole bunch of people that even to this day, like I've, I've built a, a good network of people that I bounce ideas off of. And even though we've built friendships, I still view them in like a mentorship fashion where I'm, I want to learn from them and and pick up on things that they're doing well that we maybe could could also replicate. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success, and you know one of the themes that always comes up is so even the word success means means different things to different people. And so you're on this you know great track with the 
the growth and the success of the of the business. But I'm wondering how how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, I think you I think you have to to be succinct about it. I think you have to break it into a couple categories. I think professionally, it seems like you know all the uh, all the gurus and teachers tell you to set you know short and long term goals. And the way I look at success professionally is if you're changing your goals over time or you're raising the bar, that probably means you're having success, right? So if you know if an advisor's goal is to get 100 clients, and then once he has those 100 clients, that's not the goal anymore. The goal is to get more clients or whatever, just as you, an example. You reset the goalposts. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you're resetting the goalposts, that probably means you're having you're having some success. I think that's a that's a good way to to look at it. I think personally, I think personally and professionally together, if you can wake up every day and not agonize what you have to do and you're excited about what you get to do for a living and the people that you help and the people you get to work with, I think that that's considered success. Personally, I think it's it's awesome that you know, I can provide a good life for my family, and we get to we get to have some of those experiences. My wife, my wife is a a school principal and a, a director of a special needs school, and she was able to take some time off because our kids started kindergarten this past year, and it was just too much to manage. And I'm incredibly grateful that I uh, in a position to to where we can do that, and it's it doesn't put extra stress on our family. So I think being able to provide a good life for your family is is incredibly. Uh, important and you know success really to me is just freedom having the ability to do what you want when you want and being able to help and influence those around you along the way i think ultimately leads to a lot of fulfillment i like that freedom to do what you want when you want and and be able to positively influence those around you along the way i mean michael we're happier when we're when we make those around us happy right like that's like one of the the key and and to be honest with you, not to get you know too emotional here, but like you know, it's been a tough year for everybody, right? We're all stuck at home. We haven't been able to, you know, you're used to doing 50 conferences a year or whatever you do, and you know, like we miss seeing everybody in person. And I'm a very manly man, and you know, I'll I'll say it's like we miss that human interaction, and we miss having laughs and that the the relationships that we have. And I think part of being happy is being able to help others and have positive influences on other people's lives. And that ultimately leads to our own success and happiness. And, you know, it's taken a lot of years to, to make it that simple and succinct for you, but I've learned that. And, and I try to try to live by those principles as I go forward. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Matt, so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Michael. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.